Well, now what we have the joy to do, church, is to study God's Word together. So please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, please. Romans chapter 4. What we do now is we we have a, a sermon on what the Bible is telling us here in this text. So if you have a Bible, Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. The title of this morning's message is Fully Convinced. Fully Convinced. And as I mentioned, the text is Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. And what this text talks about is God's promise to Abraham... And it describes how Abraham exhibited faith in God and how Abraham was brought to the place of being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And I believe this morning that God's burden for us, for you and for me, is that this text would bring us as well to a place of being fully convinced that what God has promised us, He can do. Now listen, many of us, I understand, experience the disillusionment of empty promises, or even worse, broken promises. This word today, I pray, would give us hope in the midst of a broken heart because of broken promises. There's nothing that can kill our faith. There's nothing that can flag our zeal. There's nothing that can steal our hope like a broken promise. We feel lied to by someone. They they made a promise to us that either they weren't ever intending to keep or they had all the good intentions in the world, but they had no power to keep. The bottom line is we are the recipients of a broken promise. And if others break their promises to us, enough, we simply stop believing them. You may be there this morning. You may be one who has made promises to others or to yourself, and you've broken them so many times that you've just, you've stopped believing even yourself. I mean, here we are in March, enough time has gone by that most of us have broken those promises that we made to ourselves, right? In January, called New Year's Resolutions. We've broken the promise that we were going to stop doing some things that were destructive to us and to others. We've broken the promise, for some of us, of eating less and working out more. We've broken the promise of reading that book, of spending more time with my family, of not getting so angry like I used to. Or we've had those promises broken to us. And they can, they can move us to a place of subtle cynicism, unbelief. We just don't care anymore. Whatever. Say whatever you want to say. I know you're never going to really do it. And sometimes we say that to the person we're looking at in the mirror. God wants you to know this morning that in the midst of all those broken promises, God will never break His promise to you. You can trust Him because God is trustworthy. God keeps His word. My prayer is that God would use this text to engage your heart that you might emerge, like Abraham, fully convinced that God is willing and that He's able to fulfill His promise. God is willing and God is able 
to fulfill his promise. In fact, the main point of this sermon, I believe, of this text is this. Consider God's promise and believe him. Consider God's promise and believe him. So let's pray. And, and let's pray as we're about to read and consider God's promise found in Romans 4, 13 to 25. Please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, help me to preach your word in a manner that honors you. And I pray that everyone listening would hear your word with faith. Lord God, may your will be done as we read about your promise. And Lord, may we believe you. May we believe you. May we take you at your word, Lord. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read the text together, shall we? Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed and who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he might become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or even when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord. And this last verse was probably a a, a creed of the first century church who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Every year in December, Gallup does a poll. And this poll that they do is ranking professionals and ranking professions from the most trusted to the least trusted. At the top, the most trusted professionals, according to the survey, are nurses. In fact, in the the top third, the medical profession, scientists, engineers, and teachers are found. Also, military personnel and law enforcement. Now, the second third, this is a little depressing for me, are found clergy, judges, mechanics, service personnel. And in the bottom third, the least trusted professionals would be the press. 
elected officials, car car salespersons, sorry, and Congress. And speaking of Congress, and that is kind of sad, and speaking of Congress, the least trusted professional is a lobbyist. Is a lobbyist. What's the point? Here's the point. It serves to remind us that a promise is only as good as the person giving it. Because the reason lobbyists are at the bottom, the reason those people are at the bottom, is because sadly today, those are people that were used to giving us all kinds of promises and having zero intention of keeping them. We know when we're being played, don't we? And it's sad. But see, when someone makes a promise, the first thing we have to ask is, who is that person that is making the promise? If we're receiving a promise from a trusted individual who does not break their promises, who is willing and able to fulfill their promises, we're much more likely to believe it. We're more likely to take their word at it. But if not... We're not going to believe them. We're not going to be played again. As a matter of fact, as I said earlier, there's nothing, nothing worse than a broken promise. It erodes trust. It tempts us to give in to cynicism. And potentially, it damages our ability to believe anything, anyone. We just become a, a furrowed-browed cynic looking for the trick, looking for the angle in everything. Friends, as we consider God's promise, we start with God. He is trustworthy. His character is perfect. He is willing. He is able to fulfill his promise. Here's the good news this morning. That God is trustworthy. He has always, and he will always fulfill his promise. Friends, God is true, though every man be a liar. So, let us consider God's promise, point one. And as we do, remember, we're considering God's promise, and so at the same time, we're considering God's person. Because the promise is only good, as good as the person making it. So, if you look at chapter 4, verse 13, we find the word promise right there in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham. This word promise is used five times in these verses, four times as a noun and one time in its verbal form. Look at verse 14. You'll see the word again, promise, when Paul writes, for it is, um, faith is no, and the promise is void. Look at verse 16. Paul again writes, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. And then look at verse 20. The word promise is used again. No unbelief made him, Abraham waver, concerning the promise of God. And then verse 21 in its verbal form, we see the word again used, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, what's the promise? Well, go back to verse 13, and we're going to see the promise. Here it is. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring would be that he would be heir of the world. Now, this is just a way for Paul to summarize God's promise to Abraham. What does it mean to be heir of the world? You're probably thinking, well, that, that, that promise doesn't like ring it clearly in my mind. Now, what in the world is being the heir of the world all about? Well, here's what it's about. In the Old Testament, God promised Abraham first. The first thing he promised Abraham was that he would have many children. Remember, his name, Abraham, means father of a multitude. Hence, the irony of the whole thing, Abraham's almost 100, has yet to have one child with Sarah. But that's God's promise. 
And so what God said is, you're going to have kids, children, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and you get the point. And there's going to be a multitude. I'm going to make of you a great nation. So that's the first promise. It's in Genesis 12 too. The second promise that God gives Abraham, he says, I'm going to give you that land, Canaan, what we call Israel today. We see that in Genesis 12, 7. So you're asking yourself, wait a second. He's going to be the heir of Canaan, of the promised land. In the New Testament, it says he's heir of all the whole world. How did it go from Canaan to the whole world? Stay with me. We'll explain that. And the third promise, and this is the key one. Back to Genesis 12, he promises Abraham that in him, in Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So what we know now from what we've read in Romans, what we know from the scriptures, is that God has blessed all the nations of the world, not just Israel, but all the nations of the world. Hence, he's not just the heir of Israel, that land, but now of all the world. It's through one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus Christ, who came to bless through his life, death, and resurrection. How did he do that? Look at the scripture we studied last week. Romans 4, 7, and 8 says this, starting in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing, there's the blessing that God promised Abraham. I'm going to, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world. Jesus was born through Abraham. Jesus was a Jew, born of the tribe of Judah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Judah. Jesus was born under that lineage. So the world is being blessed through Abraham, and it's through Jesus. And here's the blessing. Romans 4, 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. There's the blessing. That God would count us righteous right with him. There's a problem between you and God if you don't know Jesus. You deserve God's wrath because you've disobeyed his law. He's your creator. You've denied him. So there's a problem. You need to be made right with God. The blessing is in Jesus, God counts us righteous from, by faith in Christ. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here's the blessing, folks. Jesus came to live the perfect life you could never live which God requires of you. Then Jesus, Jesus was counted for your sins. Your sins were counted to his account and his righteousness was counted to your account. So that in Jesus, when he was crucified on the cross, he was cursed that we might be blessed. Verse seven, blessed. Verse eight, that happens because of what Jesus did. So God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Through you, Abraham, your descendant, all the nations, all the peoples of the world, not every single person, but all kinds of people, Colombians, Cubans, Salvadorians, Americans, Nicaraguans, Bayesians, we're all blessed because of Jesus. Now, here's the question. How do we receive that blessing? Is it by works of the law or is it by faith? Well, what the scripture here says, let's come right back into chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, there's the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So here's the problem. When we consider God's promise, which is what we're talking about, 
how we receive it can't come through the law, can't come through doing things right all the time because we break the law. All the law does is show us what we're supposed to do. And we are supposed to do it because he's God and that's his law. But it just reveals for us our sin. Look at verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And then look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. So I want you to see two contrasting ways of receiving the promise. And Paul does this on purpose here. The first group would be in verse 15. Look at the words there. Law, transgression, wrath. Do you see that in verse 15? For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law tells us what to do. We transgress or we blow it, we break it, and we receive God's wrath. And that's, it's right that we do. We break the law. The other grouping, Paul's contrasting here something else in verse 16. Look at the words there. We find here the words faith, promise, and grace. Look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. So God's promise is that we'll be blessed through the descendant of Abraham and we receive that promise by faith. Uh, John Stott, I think, will help us understand this here, this next quote. God's law makes demands which we transgress. That's verse 15. And so we incur wrath. That's exactly what scripture tells us. God's grace, verse 16, makes promises you're going to be made right with God through what Jesus did, not what you can do, which we believe, and so we receive blessing. And we receive this blessing, friends, as a gift, not as wages that we deserve. See, this this blessing, this promised blessing, salvation is what we're talking about, is a gift that we receive, not a wage that we earn. Here's the application, church. Our confidence rests on God's grace. It rests on Jesus' performance, not mine, not yours. It rests on Christ's works, not mine, not yours. Our standing is secure in Christ by faith, a faith that rests on God's grace. I love this quote by Jerry Bridges. It helps me to apply what I just said, what the scriptures say. Our worst days are never so bad that we are beyond the reach of God's grace. I don't know where you're at right now. If you are a a child of God, if God has chosen you and he's given you new life in Christ, I don't care how bad your day is. I don't care what you've done. Things that you're saying, Al, these are horrible things. Fine. That worst day of yours, it's never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. But perhaps even more important, for those of you that kind of walk this thing out well, you're being faithful. Thank you for being faithful. But remember this, and our best days are never so good that we are beyond the need of God's grace. It is by faith that rests on grace. Amazing grace. We sang about it this morning. Here's the question. Is that grace amazing to you? At the end of verse 16, Paul picks up this theme of 
Abraham's universal fatherhood. That is to say, this blessing of being made right with God, it's no longer just a Jewish thing. It's now, it's a faith thing for all who have the faith of Abraham. Look at 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. That's us now. No longer is it just being ethnically a Jew. It's having the faith of Abraham. Not only to the adherent of the law, it's the ethnic Jew, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. And here we go. Remember the promise. This is the promise. Abraham, you who have no children, you're almost 100. You, my friend, here it is, who is the father of us all. Later, it's going to say the father of many nations. So, friends, as Abraham's children, let us consider our father Abraham's faith to determine what kind of faith it is that God would count as righteousness. I mean, I want to know about this faith, and so do you. So let's take a look at it. Point two, consider Abraham's faith. As we explore the quality of Abraham's faith, we've got to begin with the object of his faith. Remember what we said at the beginning. A promise is only as good as the one making it. So we must begin with the God in whom Abraham believed. Because as we said, behind every promise lies the character, the willingness, and the ability of the one making the promise. So considering Abraham's faith means considering Abraham's God. Who is he? We'll look at verse 17. What kind of God is this that Abraham believed? That a hundred-year-old man would believe could give him children as numerous as the stars when as yet he hadn't had one. Better get going, Abraham. Talk about, you know, biological clocks ticking. This one was broken. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. There you go. There's the promise. In the presence of the God in whom he believed. Who is that God? who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You want to know the God in whom Abraham placed his faith? He is the God who is able to give life to the dead. He's able to call into existence things that do not exist. God, this God, our God, the God we worship, the God we serve, the God who lives right now, who's here by His Holy Spirit, He has the power to raise the dead, which he did when he raised Jesus from the dead. And this resurrection power was able to bring life from a man as good as dead. Abraham was about 100. And a woman whose womb was barren. This is the God in whom Abraham believed. A belief that did not deny Abraham's circumstances. You got that? Don't deny your circumstances. But rather, it affirmed the God who could bring life out of death. You got a dead relationship? You got a dead dream? Something dead? Our God can bring it to life. I know it's, it's, it's just a scandalous promise. Like, don't get that old man's hopes up. It's a hundred. Oh, but I'm not only willing, I'm able to do it. That's the difference between me and you. Here's the application, dear unbeliever. If you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, and thank you, first of all, for being here, I want to tell you something. The God that I'm preaching about, the God who's revealed in these words, the God who's with us, He is able to bring your dead heart to life. 
Now, don't be offended by this, but the Bible just says if you're not a believer, if you say, look, I don't, I don't really believe this stuff. The Bible says that you're dead to God. Your heart is dead. But here's the good news. This God is able to bring life to what is dead. And that is my prayer this morning. That as you hear the gospel preached, as you focus in on it, that God would bring to life your heart. And dear believer, God is able to bring to life His dreams for you, His plans for you. I'm not talking about crazy stuff you hatch up at night after a little too much pizza. No, I'm talking about godly, godly things. Change in you and your spouse. Grace for your family. Growth in you. An ability to share the gospel. Biblical priorities that God does promise us here in His Word. He's able to bring them back to life. God has the power. Listen, not only can He bring life to what is dead, catch the next one in verse 17. He has the power to call into existence the things that do not exist. That would be for me to just say, flat screen TV. And boom, flat screen TV. Gators victory over Pittsburgh yesterday, replay. Boom, Gators victory over Pittsburgh yesterday, replay. And it would be there. Now, some theologians say that what Paul is talking about here is God's ability to create something out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo is the fancy theological term. And it's true. God created everything out of nothing. He spoke and creation appeared. So, in a sense, you could apply that to this text. And in a sense, that is true. No sense at all. That is true. But I think if we're a little more careful with this text, especially the Greek here, though what I just said is true, I don't think so much that Paul's talking about past tense creation, speaking into existence what didn't exist, though that did happen. I think what he's talking about here is that God is able to speak into existence the many descendants that he said Abraham would have, though they were not yet in existence, and Abraham was already 100. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. I'm going to give you the thing I promised you, lots of children, though right now it seems impossible. I've got that kind of power. And that's what Abraham believed. That's what Abraham believed. Look again at verses 17 and 18. Because you see, in both those verses, you've got that promise. In fact, these two verses quote that promise. First in verse 17 from Genesis 17, 5. And then in verse 18 from Genesis 15, 5. It's, it's, the, it's the Old Testament promises. You're going to have lots of kids. You're going to be a great nation. You're going to be the father of all nations. Because through you is going to come one descendant that's going to bless the world. You're going to inherit the earth. See, listen. Listen to 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom you believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So Abraham's Abraham's vision of this God who was able to bring life from death, who was able to call into existence what did not exist, all those children he was supposed to have, and he didn't have any yet. He, He had a vision of this God, and that's what enabled him to have hope against hope. Schreiner says it this way. What sustained Abraham in his faith then was a vision, a vision of the God who could do the impossible. Not a confidence that he himself could faithfully bring the promise to pass. Here is the application question. 
Do you have that vision of God this morning? Or is your vision taken up totally with the impossibilities of what you're facing? The deadness of your abilities. The weakness of your relationships. What has captured your vision? What captured Abraham's vision? The kind of faith that God counts as righteous is a, a, a faith that has a vision of God who does the impossible. He believed God. Listen, how did that affect Abraham? Well, well look, look, look what kind of faith we're talking about. Look at verse 19. First of all, he did not weaken in faith. When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham, by faith, saw what God promised, though it had not yet appeared. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 1, tells us that that is the very definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's that kind of faith that God counts as righteousness. Our God can resurrect those dreams, those godly dreams that have died. It can cause a womb, metaphorically speaking, that is barren, a situation, a relationship, a business, a school, a church, a family. It's barren. Years, years. She's 90, all right? She's 90. She's beautiful, but she's 90. She's not having kids. Oh, yes, she is, if God says she is. Because my God can bring life from that dead womb. My God can speak into existence what doesn't yet exist. Oh, friends, very important. What else does Abraham's faith look like? Look at verse 20. Verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. This is the best one for me. Because Abraham had this vision of God, what did Abraham understand? How could you tell a 100-year-old guy that you're going to have so many kids you can't count them, you have yet to have one, and your wife's 90? How can you write this? No unbelief made him waver? Really? I mean, if you read the account of Abraham, he did some wavering. He fathered a child with a slave woman thinking that child would be his heir, and God said, no, it's going to be you and Sarah. He did a lot of stuff that looked really waverly to me. <laughs> Actually, I, I'm so glad Abraham's the example of faith. I'm glad he's my father in faith. You know why? Because I do a lot of squirrely stuff too. I do a lot of sketchy stuff. I try to help God. I, I so appreciated Orlando saying, maybe trying to manipulate God a little bit to get this baby that he so wanted. Who hasn't been there? It doesn't work. But, but how is he characterized here? He's characterized as a man that, that no unbelief made him waver. You know Why? Because the faith that God counts as righteous is a faith that says, I'm imperfect, but I trust my perfect God. The faith that, that, that God counts as righteous says, you know, everybody says, you know what? I'm going to believe the promise because God guaranteed it by his own being. God says, I guarantee that promise. I guarantee it. I'm putting my name to it. And Abraham says, that's good enough for me. Hebrews chapter 6. I love this passage. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, this is the promise we're preaching right here, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. 
Dan Gilbert, who owns Quicken Loans and owns the Cleveland Cavalier, put up a billion-dollar bet. You could win a billion dollars from Dan Gilbert if you chose all the games of the NCAA March Madness correctly. By the way, there's no one, that's not, no one has done it. It's, all, it's been broken. Okay, Dayton beating, beating Ohio State broke it, and uh, Mercer beating Duke broke it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. Just, just stay with me on the, on the, on the uh, guaranteeing things. So Dan Gilbert said, if you pick the perfect bracket, all your teams win, I'll give you a billion dollars. You know who he had guarantee that bet? Warren Buffett. He bought insurance with Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett's a smart guy. You got money, you're going to make money. Warren Buffett said, listen, Dan, I will guarantee your bet. I'll, I'll pay the billion if someone loses. Uh, and he hasn't disclosed how much. But you're going to go ahead and give me X amount of dollars. You know, it's like when you pay insurance, you know? Okay? Listen, someone far greater than Warren Buffett, far greater than Warren Buffett is guaranteeing this. Someone who never lies. Someone who is the creator of all the universe. And God said, listen, Abraham, I am going to now swear by the greatest one I know. He swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you, father of many nations, you who's a hundred, you who's old, you whose wife's womb is barren, you who are a loser boy. I am going to make it happen because I'm putting my name behind it. And Abraham believed God. Here it says he waited patiently, and he obtained the promise. Oh, friend, believe this God who is awesome. But Al, do, do I, do, is he willing? Is he willing? Remember you said he's able, okay, but is he willing? Oh, he is. Oh, he is. And that brings me to the third point. Believe God. Believe God. Oh, friends. Friends, we began the sermon saying that a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. And that behind every promise is the reliability of the person making the promise. So you've got to answer this question. Is God willing to fulfill the promise of making me righteous before Him? And is He able? Is He willing and is He able? Read verse 22 through 25 with me. Speaking of Abraham, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. That's speaking of Abraham. But then Paul, Paul penning this. Paul saying this is redemptive history. Paul saying this is exactly what happened. But Paul says this is more than a history lesson for you, Palm Vista. He turns to us. He looks us straight in the face. And he said, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for you, Palm Vista, verse 24. For you, Alpino. It will also be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, verse 25, an ancient church creed who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you want to know if God was willing? Would it convince you that He is? If I told you that He died to fulfill His promise? Does that answer the question? How much more willing can I be than that I take my only begotten son and deliver him up on a bloody cross to die for your sin so that I could bless you because apart from this, I can't bless you because you've broken my law. Does that, does that settle the am I, is he willing question for you? Oh, I pray it would. 
I know for me, there's times I doubt it. I complain. My dreams start dying. They're dying. Sometimes they seem like they're dying. One agonizing moment. It's almost like he's prolonging my agony. Just go ahead and shoot it in the head. But it's just lying there on life support. I just want to say, I'm done. Where is it? And then he reminds me, I'm willing, Al. I came to that cross and I died for you. Who else has done that? What other religion? Please tell me. None. None. He's willing. But oh, Al, is he able? Is he able? Listen, Al, I've been duped by people who were willing. They had the best of intentions. They intended to to fulfill the promise. They had good hearts. They just didn't have the power to. They didn't have the time, the money, the resources. They didn't have the brains. They couldn't figure it out. They wanted to bless me, so they made this promise, and yet they broke it, not intentionally, unintentionally. Is God able? Oh, the second part of verse 25 tells us he is. He not only delivered up Jesus for our transgressions, but he raised him for our justification. He's able, friend, because God can bring to life what is dead. Because God can bring into existence what does not yet exist. God can yank all the wires off the life support of whatever dream it is he's given you that's dying right in front of your eyes. And God immediately can get it up out of the bed, running down the hallway. Not walking out of the hallway. Running down the hallway. Biking home. And laughing all the way home. He raises the dead. This is our God. And I'll leave you with one final scripture. Turn in your Bibles, or if not, I've got it here, to Romans 8, 32. Because this idea, this verbiage in verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses, who was delivered up for our trespasses. The same verbiage, the same kind of Greek construction is found in Romans 8.32. And this answers not only the am I willing and am I able question, but this, this, this is like a cold drink of water on a hot South Florida day for my soul. When everything seems to be going wrong, I read this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. That's the same verbiage as delivered him up. What that's talking about is God placed Christ on the cross. Christ went willingly. God did that. So he could fulfill his promise to us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How? How, Alpino, will he not also with him graciously, graciously give us all things? Now, this isn't all things you desire, sinfully, is isn't all things you might even think you need, but it's all things that you do need for your good and His glory. It's all things we need for life and godliness. It's all things that we need. It's what we ultimately need is life and to be made righteous though we are unrighteous. And so based upon seeing a vision of your awesome God and hearing what He's done for you and what He is able to do and willing to do, Believe in the one who delivered his son up to death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, raised him from the dead for your justification, for your vindication. The resurrection authenticates, God authenticates what occurred on the cross, the great exchange. He gets my sin, I get his righteousness. Believe in him. Let's pray. Worship team, please join me up front.
Lord God, I pray that you would give us this morning the faith of Abraham, our father. That we would truly be children of Abraham. Because Abraham was made righteous by faith. We are made righteous by faith alone, in Christ alone, resting on God's grace alone. Lord, if there's anyone in this auditorium that doesn't know you, that is wondering what was just said, and if there is beginning to dawn in their hearts some understanding, perhaps from from religious training when they were younger, and, and suddenly some of the pieces are coming together, and some of the dots are being connected, Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Give them life. Give life to that which was dead. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, he's made alive together with Christ. Lord, and for those of us that have felt like dreams have died a slow death, We've felt lonely. We've looked down the dark, dark well of of long ago forgotten dreams and broken promises to ourselves and to others and from others. And we've just thought, what's the use? Father, revive us. Lord, give us that faith that Abraham had. As it says in Hebrews, Abraham says, God guaranteed this. Therefore, I'm going to wait patiently, no matter how long it takes. Give us a vision of yourself. And may we declare grace as amazing. In Jesus' name, amen.